This is Spacetime Series 25, Episode 58, for broadcast on the 30th of May, 2022. Coming up on Spacetime, has an ancient doorway been found on Mars? The largest asteroid to approach Earth this year? And Starliner finally completes a successful orbital test flight. All that and more coming up on Spacetime. Welcome to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. Well, the internet's certainly been a buzz this week with news that NASA's Mars Curiosity rover has taken an image of what looks like a doorway on the red planet. Is it the entrance to a secret passage, maybe leading to an ancient underground alien temple, just waiting for Arnold Schwarzenegger to activate its power? Or maybe it's some sort of secret military bunker, hidden in the cliff face. Certainly the conspiracy theorists have been busy typing away in their parents' basements with all sorts of possible explanations. The image of the doorway-like formation was taken on May the 7th, its smooth, straight lines and overhanging lintel quickly catching people's attention. Now, in reality, it's simply an eroded rock face that had broken away, leaving a rectangular door-shaped crevice in the exposed surface. Curiosity mission managers with NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California, say material between two vertical fractures in the rock formed from ancient sand dunes had simply split away over centuries, leaving the alcove behind. In fact, similar vertical fractures were found in lots of other rocks at the same location. But the image was just right to send social media viral, with claims that finally there was proof that an ancient Martian civilization once inhabited the red planet. Of course, they left out the fact that the opening was less than a metre high. So the Martians must have been really short, sort of like Marvin, rather than tall like the Predator. This planet in the name of Mars. Ooh, isn't that lovely? Mm. Of course, the whole thing is very reminiscent of the famous Sphinx like face on Mars, seen from orbit in the Sidonia region of the Red Planet by NASA's Viking 1 spacecraft in 1976. The angle of the sun was just right to cast shadows across the two kilometer long mesa, giving it an airy human face like appearance. And the fact that there was a large nearby mountain which looked like a five-sided pyramid didn't help. Nor did a pile of boulders in the area, which quickly earned the name of the ruined city, because it looked like the remains of an ancient Egyptian temple complex. Conspiracy theorists claim that these features too were proof of a long-lost Martian civilization. For one, welcome our new insect overlords. Like to remind them that as a trusted TV personality, uh, I can be helpful in rounding up others. Attempts by scientists to explain them as nothing more than tricks of light and shade, together with the effects of pareidolia, were quickly dismissed as part of a giant cover-up. In fact, it wasn't until 20 years later, when NASA's Mars Global Surveyor and Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter spacecraft together with the European Space Agency's Mars Express mission, each in turn flew over the Sidonia region, taking far higher resolution images of the face on Mars, the pyramid and the ruined city, proving once and for all they really were just natural geological formations. So the speculation finally ended. Or has it? 
In 2021, China's U-2 rover spotted what looks like a cube on the moon. That turned out to be just a rock. And just last week, the interwebs marveled at claw-like scratches stretched across Mars's western hemisphere. They turned out to be fault lines. Astronomer and distinguished Professor Stephen Tingay from Curtin University says there are far better explanations out there than aliens. I think uh, any reasonable human observer of the photograph would say that's a door in the face of that rock face, but it's not. So I need to say I'm not a geologist, I'm an, an astrophysicist, but I've read the geologist explanations and yeah, it's a, a chunk of rock that's fallen out of the, the face and produced an opening that to us looks a bit like a door, but not at all. And the bit of rock that's fallen out, I guess there could have been millions of years, billions of years ago, and the chunk of rock that's fallen off has been covered by sand. Yeah, fallen off, rolled away, broken yeah. up. Yep. Does it amuse you when things like this appear? I mean, we had the same thing with a face on Mars, didn't we? Yeah, the, the face on Mars is a pretty famous example. That was that was a while ago now and from an orbiter. I was working at JPL at that period. So, yeah, that was in all the newspapers. But from a later mission with a much higher resolution image, yeah, it just turned out to be a bunch of rocks. And that's, that's what all of these things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I can't say I'm amused because as humans, we seem to be particularly wired to recognize patterns of that nature. And that's just part of our that's evolutionary makeup. Yeah. 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 So it's not surprising. I mean, maybe what I find a little bit surprising is that some fraction of people jump to the most extreme speculative cause for these things without thinking through some of the basic evidence. It's always interesting when an image comes up which has a thousand explanations, but the immediate one is, that's got to be a UFO, you know, without looking at all the other possibilities. Just UFO, done. Yeah, no, I I, I agree. So I, I like talking about this subject because I think it's a good opportunity for scientists to talk about science and the scientific method and the nature of evidence and the nature of conclusion. And if you want to make an absolutely earth-shaking conclusion, you need pretty earth-shaking evidence. What we're seeing here is this beautiful geologic strata of Mount Sharp as it's being investigated by the Curiosity rover. And it's continuing its climb up the side of this mountain in the centre of the crater. The science that we've got from it so far has been absolutely amazing. Yeah, it's pretty astonishing to think that we as humans can send objects to another planet that roam around the surface and collect information and send that back to us and explore an entirely different planet completely remotely. That That is astonishing. I think that's extraordinary. That's the human endeavour. Absolutely amazing. Curiosity's proven to us not just that water existed on Mars, but that it was flowing in rivers and streams because the rocks around it, the pebbles around it where it was flowing. Yeah, no, there's all, all sorts of interesting evidence of that nature and I I guess the next step in the collection of, of that type of evidence is to send humans there because as incredible as it is to send a rover and get images, really, even now, there, there's still no substitute for the human eye and the human brain. I guess the other big UFO news right now is the United States Congress. They've asked the Pentagon to investigate following all sorts of interesting little dots and tic-tac-like objects that have been caught on various military cameras. Mike West, who's a, a huge skeptic, has already examined a lot of these and he's basically ticked most of them off as being, yeah, this is caused by a weather balloon, this was caused by an apparition in the lens of the camera itself or the processing of the electronics within within the fighter aircraft that led to this. And yet the push to try and find an extraterrestrial explanation for unidentified flying objects remains. Yeah, 
no, interesting. Um, so increasingly, the authorities won't talk about UFOs. The, the terminology has changed a bit, and they're now referred to as unidentified aerial phenomena. And I guess, I guess there's a couple of reasons for the change, and one of them is probably to try and remove that uh, long-standing assumption of UFO equals alien. So as you say, most of these things can be fairly readily explained in most cases, and in, indeed that's what usually happens. It's interesting that the Congress is examining some of the information that the, the US government holds in relation to unidentified aerial phenomena. I think they're quite open that even though you can explain a lot of things, some of the things are unidentified, are unexplained. But again, going back to that discussion about conclusion and evidence, if you're going to claim that something is aliens, then you'd better have something a bit better than a, a fuzzy video. I love to fly light aircraft, and uh, whenever I get a chance to fly, I often ponder, what would I do if I actually saw an unidentified flying object, something I couldn't explain? And I got to admit, I would probably keep it to myself. You know, so Maybe the change of name uh, may not be such a bad idea. Yeah, I, I, I think so. It, it's a it's a subtle shift in terminology, but it, words matter in a lot of cases. And it just underlines the fact that yet these there are some sightings or observations that are not easy to explain, but that's generally because there's really limited data or really limited information, and therefore it's really difficult to draw a conclusion about anything. But again, if you want to make a big conclusion, you need a lot of really good evidence and the, the simplest explanations are the best explanations to use that explain all the known facts, nothing more, nothing less. Occam's razor. Occam's razor. That's Professor Stephen Tingay from Curtin University. The six-wheeled car-sized Mars Curiosity rover landed in the Red Planet's 154-kilometre-wide Gale Crater back in August 2012, and it's been exploring the ancient impact crater ever since. Curiosity arrived at the foothills of the crater's 5.5-kilometre-high central peak, Aeolus Mons, better known as Mount Sharp, in 2014. This is space-time. Still to come, the largest asteroid to approach Earth in 2022 and Starliner completes its second orbital test flight. All that and more still to come on Space Time. The Earth has just been visited by the largest asteroid to approach the planet this year. The 1.8-kilometre-wide space rock the size of a mountain flew past the planet at over 48,000 kilometres an hour at a distance of roughly 4 million kilometres. The asteroid, named 1989JA, was discovered in 1989 by astronomer Eleanor Helen at the Mount Palomar Observatory in Southern California. Even though this flyby was the closest this object will get to Earth within the next 172 years, it's still classified as a potentially hazardous asteroid because its orbit crosses the orbit of Earth. Meanwhile, another potentially hazardous asteroid passed much closer to the Earth just a few days earlier. The University of New South Wales says asteroid 22 UX68 passed the Earth at a distance of just 941,000 kilometres, travelling at 8 kilometres per second. In order to better refine the asteroid's orbit, NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory and the CSIRO attempted to track the 70-metre-wide space rock using one of NASA's Canberra Deep Space Communications Network dishes at Tidbinbilla and the Australia Telescope Compact Array Observatory near Narrabri. 
However, these were both unsuccessful, as were Australian optical telescope observations due to the ongoing poor weather conditions along the Australian east coast. Luckily, the weather was much better across the ditch in New Zealand, where optical telescopes were able to track the asteroid as it passed. 2012 UX68 was discovered in October 2012. It orbits the Sun every 416 days on a highly elliptical orbit ranging from an aphelion of 209 million kilometres down to a perihelium of just 117 million kilometres. Like 1989JA, 2012 UX68 is classified as an Apollo Group asteroid, meaning its orbit crosses Earth's orbit around the Sun. This is space time. Still to come, Boeing's Starliner finally completes a successful orbital test flight. And later on the science report, growing concern globally over an increasing number of cases of monkeypox. All that and more still to come on Space Time. After a string of failures and other technical issues, Boeing has finally successfully completed an orbital test flight of NASA's new Starliner CST-100 spacecraft. The Starliner capsule touched down under parachutes on the White Sands Missile Range in New Mexico four hours after undocking from the International Space Station. The Unmanned Orbital Flight Test, or OFT-2 mission, had taken off six days earlier aboard a United Launch Alliance Atlas V Centaur rocket from Space Launch Complex 41 at the Cape Canaveral Space Force Base in Florida. LC flight. Starliner configured for terminal count. Roger. All steps are complete prior to terminal count. And Lauren, with that call, that uh, all of the work is now complete and the computers are going to take over the automated countdown. Ground pyros enabled. Ground system ordinance has been enabled. Atlas hydraulics at flight pressure. Atlas's hydraulic steering system has been pressurized for flight. Securing LO2 topping. Pressurizing Atlas tanks. Topping of liquid oxygen in the Atlas has now completed and Atlas propellant tanks are pressurized for flight. Vehicle internal. Bot sequencer start. Securing Centaur LH2. Securing Centaur LO2. Centaur hydrogen and oxygen are now at flight level and topping is being terminated. Launch enabled. SDS on. OC is armed. SDS count started. EDS ascent. EDS armed and ready means the emergency detection system is now armed. One and minute. That basically just means Rob, that if it detects static. something, it will change the support system on Starliner and fire Fifth automatically. PLP started. would push itself far up and away from the rocket. We're talking a mile up and a mile out in just a matter of seconds. We certainly don't expect to see that today. Atlas at flight press. Centaur at flight press. Vehicles now pressurized for flight. Status check. Go Atlas. Go Centaur. Go Starliner. All systems are go for liftoff. Go Starliner. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. And liftoff. Starliner is headed back to space on the shoulders of Atlas, powered by a workforce dedicated to its success. We have confirmation of a good MET EPIC timer on Starliner. Atlas executed its role program. This is the first planned throttle down for Atlas in preparation for Max Q. Max Q, maximum dynamic pressure limit. Right now, atmospheric forces are the highest Starliner Atlas will face during the uphill climb. 
Mach 1, Atlas V and Starliner are now supersonic. Fecal now throttling up. Up next in about 20 seconds, Starliner's two solid rocket boosters will run out of fuel and burn out. And we have burnout on both SRBs. Good crew module forward link connection. Already ready is throttling back up to full thrust. Atlas V now weighs just one half of what it did at launch, burning propellant at a rate of 2,800 pounds per second. And we have indication of SRB jettison. Atlas continues to ascend using solely the RD-180 engine. That's about 850,000 pounds of thrust at sea level. Already ready is throttling down slightly as expected. Engine response looks good. Teams here on the ground confirming Starliner has a good trajectory, flying at an altitude of 56 kilometers. Our next throttle down will be to control acceleration forces, uh, limit forces on the crew to below 4 Gs. That is safe for an extended period of time. One minute remaining in this burn. One minute to Biko. Already ready is now throttling to maintain 3.5 G acceleration on the vehicle. Starliner flying off the uh, east coast at this point at an uh, altitude of 80 kilometers now, moving at a rate of 1,187 miles per hour. It's just passing North Carolina and Virginia off the northeastern seaboard. For those of you watching along the coastline, you might be able to see this launch. And we have Biko booster engine cutoff. We have successful staging, pre-start on the RL-10s. We have ignition on both RL-10s. Centaur's now gone to closed-loop steering. Just passed through several milestones. Teams here on the ground reporting that all are looking good. Ascent cover jettison there. That provided that aerodynamic structure to the top of Starliner, protecting the docking equipment during ascent. And now that Starliner and Centaur are free of the atmosphere, well into the vacuum of space, that aeroskirt has been jettisoned. Now six minutes into today's launch. Starliner continuing to accelerate up the North American coast. Everything going smoothly so far. Starliner and Centaur have been taking through their asset milestones right on track, including the booster stage separation, Centaur ignition, and aeroskirt jettison. A number of status calls we'll be listening for in the next several minutes, but if all continues to go well, the next major milestone to watch out for is the main engine cutoff when Starliner will be officially in space. We heard a report from uh, ULA's team. We had a, a little bit of an overperformance on the booster, but the, that's a good Five thing. Centaur is more than capable of adjusting on the fly in its closed-loop performance. Centaur pressures are stable. Centaur looks good. Flight control teams are also monitoring the performance of the sublimator on Starliner right now. The sublimator is what is used to control cabin temperatures going up to space and coming home. Normally, we use the radiators on the service module, but uh, those are not powered up until we get into orbit. We heard confirmation that St. John's abort zone is open. We pre-select these uh, splashdown zones in the case of any needed aborts. Um, the first one would be the Saint off the coast of St. John's, Nova Scotia. Flight Dynamics Officer report everything is pretty good. Flight controllers here in Michigan Control confirming that our main engine cutoff time is looking stable. It is going to be 11 minutes and 50 seconds into the flight. We are now 8 minutes and 50 seconds in, so that's uh, still about 3 minutes to go until we hit that milestone. Now one of the next calls that we will hear is that the Shannon aboard zone will be open. We pre-plan our flight trajectories so uh, we would not aboard a crew into the middle of the ocean. They'd be near enough to land for quick and speedy recovery. So we're still in that St. John's aboard zone. Expect to hear that Shannon open call coming. Shannon now open. Sister Langer could potentially make that abort landing off the coast of Ireland now if needed, but so far no reason to think it will be. Starliner currently 153 kilometers above the Atlantic Ocean, uh, and that's about 95 miles. We are 11 minutes into today's flight. Centaur and Starliner are passing Mach 23, Mach 23.3 and counting, altitude of just under 150 kilometers. Miko's main engine cutoff when both those dual, of the dual engine Centaur RL-10s are scheduled to shut down. That again is coming up at 11 minutes and 50 seconds. 
about five seconds away now. And we have Miko 1. Since our engines have cut off, RCS is now at 100% Main engine cut off, so. right on time. Starliner is in space, but not done with the ascent milestones. Hearing in the room that it was a good main engine cut off. The next milestone that we'll be looking for is launch vehicle separation, when Starliner will separate from Centaur booster and fly on its own. Even after that happens, we'll have about 15 minutes until our final major milestone in today's ascent, the orbital insertion burn that will raise the perigee, our low point of Starliner's orbit, out of the Earth's atmosphere. So stick with us. We're not done yet. Now 12 minutes and 30 seconds into today's flight. We just heard our Atlas console position report a spacecraft separation for 1450 after launch. Still about two minutes away. Now right now ULA teams are confirming that Centaur is in a good configuration for separation making sure that all of the pressures in the tanks are stable and it will be able to conduct a proper disposal burn later. Flight control teams here in the room are moving to their insertion checklists. 60 seconds to spacecraft set. Centaur has now achieved its separation attitude. Just under a minute now to go until the launch vehicle separation. The team here on the ground reporting that Starliner and Centaur are both ready for it in the right orientation and on a stable trajectory. Centaur is holding attitude for Starliner separation. And we have confirmation of Starliner separation. And Starliner is flying alone on its way to orbit. Confirm good LV separation. Thanks, ULA, for a smooth ride to space. That milestone behind us, the next one we'll be watching for is that orbital insertion burn. That is going to raise the perigee or the low point of Starliner's orbit out of the Earth's atmosphere, putting it uh, in space for its full orbit. Uh, that's an important important milestone to reach. It's going to be a 45-second burn. It'll change Starliner's velocity about 85 meters per second or 190 miles per hour. And that's going to be coming up at the 31-minute mark in today's orbit. We're now just under 16 minutes into today's flight, so still about 15 minutes to go for that. So there's a number of things that flight controllers are working on right now. They're transitioning Starliner from its launch mode over to its orbit mode. That includes powering up things like antennas, heaters, uh, and those radiators that I mentioned earlier. We have good targeting for orbital insertion, a good forward command link, and a good MET epoch timer. Starliner making its way over the North Atlantic. Some other things going on right now. They are powering down some what's called demonstration flight instrumentation. We have some extra sensors on there for these demonstration flights. Uh, we have more of them on during a power descent, but we don't need some of those right now, so flight controllers are powering some of those down. But some other things that are powering on include those propulsion line heaters. When uh, in the vacuum of space and in the Earth's shadow, it gets quite cold, around negative 250 degrees, so we want to make sure those propulsion lines don't freeze. And uh, the radiators are those little small silver over discs you might be able to see on the side of the service module. Uh, if you remember your high school physics, the only way you can get rid of heat in a vacuum is through radiation, and so that sublimator will be powering down and the radiators will be taking care of the heat management for the rest of the flight until we get ready to come home. Some RCS jet activations, those are just helping a target for that orbital insertion burn. L plus 23, the team will transition Starliner into what's called fine pointing mode or thrust align mode. So those jets firing will hold a very specific attitude, uh, which is exactly the attitude that we need for that orbital insertion burn, as Brandy mentioned earlier. I want that 85 meters per second of delta V to be going in exactly the right direction. Starliner is currently coming up on the coast of Europe and is about 139 miles, 224 kilometers above the Atlantic Ocean as it makes its way to the topmost or the highest part of this orbit and will be heading uh, 
southeast over uh, Europe and a little bit of Africa in the next few minutes as it begins its journey to start catching up with the International Space Station. Again, uh, one of the major milestones coming up in preparation for that is the orbital insertion burn. Confirmation, we still have a good forward link command connection. So we're about a minute away before the flight controllers put Starliner into its thrust align mode. Once again, just making sure that Starliner is pointed exactly at the right attitude for that orbital insertion burn. It's going to hold that attitude. Guidance navigation control officer confirmed that Starliner is moving towards that OI attitude and will begin holding for orbital insertion. Starliner is in the burn attitude. Nose of Starliner might have been pointed down towards the Earth, but that's actually the attitude that it needs to be because as it orbits around the Earth, it will no longer be pointing at Earth. It will be pointing at that specific point in space that the orbital insertion burn will send us to. And once again, there will be a lot of thruster activity. We want those four aft-facing OMAC engines, that's about 1,200 pounds of thrust each, uh, to be pushing in exactly the right direction. OMAC standing for Orbital Maneuvering and Attitude Control. They're going to fire for 45 seconds for this burn, changing Starliner's velocity by 85 meters per second or 190 miles per hour. Orbital insertion burn starting in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Again, this burn is going to last for 45 seconds. Teams here on the ground reporting four good orbital maneuvering and attitude control thrusters. OI cutoff in five, four, three, two, one. And we have OI cutoff. And we have confirmation from Flight Director Mike Lammers. We have a good orbital insertion burn. Starliner is in a stable, circular orbit on its way to the International Space Station. Yeah, the mission still had its dramas. The spacecraft encountered some troubles during the ascent, with two of the 12 orbital maneuvering and attitude control, or OMAC thrusters, located on Starliner's aft side initially firing, but then suddenly shutting down, forcing a third to take up their slack. And then there was a second issue involving a sublimator, which is responsible for cooling the spacecraft. It was initially slow to get started. Now, despite these problems, Starliner did successfully rendezvous with the International Space Station and performed a two-hour station-keeping maneuver 10 metres from the orbital outpost while mission managers checked docking ring alignments before finally allowing the spacecraft to dock automatically 26 hours after launch. The capsule delivered some 245 kilograms of supplies, food and test equipment, including helmet water absorption pads, which will be fitted to the space station crew's spacesuits, following a number of water leaks in the suits during recent spacewalks. NASA's been using the same spacesuit since the space shuttle era, so they're getting a bit long in the tooth. And NASA are planning to introduce new spacesuits for the Artemis missions. Also aboard Starliner was the test flight mannequin Rosie the Rocketeer. During the failed OFT-1 mission, Rosie was outfitted with 15 sensors to collect data on what the astronauts will experience during their flights on Starliner. For OFT-2, spacecraft data capture points previously connected to Rosie's 15 sensors were used to collect data from sensors placed along the seat pallet, which is the infrastructure used to hold the crew seats in place. Once all the other supplies had been removed, Rosie was joined by 272 kilograms of nitrogen-oxygen recharge tanks for the journey back to Earth. The three tanks, which provide breathable air for station crew, will be refurbished on the ground and then flown back to the space station. 
Starliner undertook an automated undocking from the space station, followed by a deorbit burn, successful separation of the spacecraft's service module, a smooth atmospheric re-entry, a successful deployment of the three main parachutes and six airbags, and a precision target landing and recovery. Once again, receiving uh, data from the Starliner now that it's passed through that plasma buildup. Everything going well as it makes its way across this uh, track heading towards a landing in the New Mexico desert. Teams on the ground reporting good trajectory. And the forward heat shield has now jettisoned. That heat shield protected the spacecraft through those thermal loads during re-entry. And drugs are out. Two drug parachutes slowing Starliner's speed and drag. They're going to reef to a wider opening and start slow Starliner down enough for the main chutes to deploy in less than a minute. And mains are now out. We see three parachutes coming out here. Starliner has another 8,000 feet toward the landing. Those three parachutes are starting to inflate now. And the main parachutes are reefing open right there. Continuous slowing Starliner down. Three good main parachutes, looking good. And there goes the base heat shield, just jettisoned, falling away from the spacecraft. It will reveal the airbags that will cushion Starliner's landing. And those airbags are now inflating. Starliner is two minutes, 40 seconds from landing. Those will come in real handy when we have crew on board for the crew flight test of Starliner in a few months. Help ensure that the crew gets a nice, soft uh, touchdown. And those bags are filled with nitrogen as they guide Starliner safely back to the desert floor. Flight controllers here in the room reporting good airbags. Everything going exactly how we want to hear it. Exact touchdown time will vary a little bit depending on the winds at the landing site, but everything's going smoothly. And touchdown Starliner. We're touching down in the desert of New Mexico, marking the completion of orbital flight test two. And that touchdown coming at 5.49 p.m. Central Time, almost exactly six days into the mission. Just a beautiful touchdown in White Sands this evening. Starliner is meant to complement SpaceX's Dragon capsule in providing crew transportation services to and from the space station as part of NASA's commercial crew program. But while Dragon has now undertaken six manned space flights to the orbiting outpost, including five for NASA and one for Axiom Space, as well as another manned flight taking a group of space tourists into orbit, Starliner has been struggling with ongoing technical issues. Their first unmanned orbital demonstration test flight back in December 2019 failed to reach the space station because of a mission clock error, triggering an early orbital insertion burn, which resulted in the spacecraft entering orbit too low. Mission managers then found a software error which would have prevented docking even if the spacecraft had reached the orbital outpost. And it almost failed to make it back to the ground because of another software issue. This one would have caused the spacecraft's service module to crash into the capsule during the return to Earth, had the problem not been discovered and rectified at the last minute. A first attempt at a second unmanned orbital demonstration mission back in August last year was scrubbed after corrosion was discovered in 13 propulsion system valves due to moisture from a passing thunderstorm interacting with the propellant's nitrogen tetroxide oxidizer. The problem is the reaction had occurred deep inside the spacecraft, meaning it needed to be disassembled in order to reach the corroded components. Now, based on the data from this mostly successful OFT2 flight, a manned test flight to the space station could happen by the end of the year. And if that works out successfully, then Starliner will join Dragon, providing regular crew transport services to and from the International Space Station. This is Space Time.
And time now to take a brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with a science report. Concern is continuing to mount globally over the increasing number of cases of monkeypox now being detected across Europe, the United States and Australia. The chickenpox-like infection, which is normally endemic to Western and Central Africa, has now been reported in more than 20 non-African countries. Monkeypox is a DNA-based viral infection from the same family as smallpox. It's endemic to Africa with two strains, described as the milder West African clade and the more severe Congo Basin clade. Monkeypox is usually spread through close contact with an infected person or by virus-contaminated objects such as bedding or clothing. The virus can enter the body through broken skin, the respiratory tract, or through the eyes, nose, or mouth. Following infection, and after a 7-17 day incubation period, there's a flu-like illness, with high fevers, headaches, swellings, back pain, and aching muscles for a few days before the rashes appear. It's quite an extensive rash that can last up to four weeks. It can be extremely itchy and painful. It changes and goes through different stages before finally forming a scab which can lead to permanent disfigurement. Pneumonia, diarrhea and eye issues can occur. The good news is the infection usually clears up on its own and lasts between 14 and 21 days. The smallpox vaccine provides some protection against monkeypox. Smallpox killed more than 500 million people during the 1900s. Meanwhile, a study of seven patients diagnosed with monkeypox in the UK between 2018 and 2021 suggests that some antiviral medications may have the potential to shorten symptoms and reduce the amount of time a patient's contagious. A new study has shown that vaccinated people who catch COVID-19 tend to spread the virus to fewer people and shed live virus for a shorter period of time than unvaccinated or only partially vaccinated people. The findings, reported in the Journal of the American Medical Association, found that vaccinated people pass the infection on just 7% of the time, compared to 26% of the time for the unvaccinated group. The study also found that fully vaccinated people shed live virus that could be grown in cell culture for four days after symptoms started, while partially vaccinated shed live virus for eight days and unvaccinated people for 10 days after symptoms began. The authors say the study provides important evidence that although there is the possibility of breakthrough infections, COVID-19 vaccinations remain critically successful for controlling the spread of the virus. Over 6.3 million people have now been killed by the COVID-19 coronavirus since it first appeared in the area surrounding China's Wuhan Institute of Virology back in September 2019. However, the World Health Organization says the true death toll is likely to be around 15 million, with well over half of being confirmed cases globally. Archaeologists have discovered a series of vibrantly coloured frescoes in an ancient temple at Esna, 60 kilometres south of the ancient Egyptian capital of Luxor. The ancient temple, dedicated to the Egyptian deity Kunam, was decorated mainly during the Roman period between the 1st and 3rd centuries. The spectacular roof is supported by 18 columns with varied floral capitals made to look like palm leaves, lotus buds and papyrus fans, and bunches of grapes, which is the distinctively Roman feature. The images were discovered on the ceiling under a thick coating of dust and soot and comprise 46 depictions of the upper Egyptian vulture goddess Nekbet and the lower Egyptian serpent goddess Wadit, both with outstretched wings. 
While Nick Bet is the head of a vulture in the white crown of Upper Egypt, Wadit can be recognised by the Lower Egyptian crown, topped with a cobra. Victims of the devastating floods which recently ravaged parts of the Australian Pacific coast around the New South Wales Northern Rivers region are now being inundated by conspiracy theorists claiming the deluge wasn't an act of nature or climate change, but rather a deliberately orchestrated campaign using cloud seeding to remove people from the area. It's all very reminiscent of American conspiracy theorists claiming aircraft convection trails are actually chemtrails comprising chemical or biological agents being sprayed by government for nefarious purposes. Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptics says numerous Facebook groups are now claiming the flooding is part of a man-made weather event. There are certain things in, in the sceptical spectrum that some things are fun. UFOs, not just one stuff, that's not the fun. You get the other end of things where people start to take advantage of other people for their own personal agenda, and that's where it makes the sceptics very, very upset. And this is about yeah, the recent floods up in northern New South Wales, southern southeast Queensland, and what they're suggesting, these conspiracy followers are suggesting that the floods are man-made, and man-made as in controlling the weather. The harps thing that... Well, harps isn't mentioned much anymore because it's sort of closed down, doesn't it? Yes, it um, Anyway, but I mean, so, no, it's, the, the story I've heard from people who were very close to me was that basically it's cloud seeding uh-huh. and controlling the weather, and that they are doing it to try and bring in a one-world government or a control, at least, of the individuals. And someone put it to me that the flooding around Byron Bay in the northern New South Wales, which is the area around there is, is a uh, yeah, it's well-known, new age sort of more spiritual, hippie-ish. It's the hippie part of town. Yeah, yeah. Therefore, the weather is being controlled to flood them, to take away these alternative thinkers, by forcing them to move into the cities where they can be more easily controlled. And the, but this motivation to actually control people is insulting. These things are coming out within the 24 hours of the floods and people saying that this is government control, etc. That's Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptics. That's the show for now. Space Time is available every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday through Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Spotify, Acast, Amazon Music, Bytes.com, SoundCloud, YouTube, your favorite podcast download provider, and from SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com. Space Time's also broadcast through the National Science Foundation on Science Zone Radio and on both iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio. And you can help to support our show by visiting the Spacetime store for a range of promotional merchandising goodies. Or by becoming a Spacetime patron, which gives you access to triple episode commercial-free versions of the show, as well as lots of bonus audio content which doesn't go to air, access to our exclusive Facebook group and other rewards. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.com for full details. And if you want more space time, please check out our blog where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as heaps of images, news stories, loads of videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us through at StuartGary on Twitter, at SpacetimeWithStuartGary on Instagram, through our Spacetime YouTube channel. And on Facebook, just go to facebook.com forward slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary. And Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. 
This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. 